If you're good at something, never do it for free. You're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. I bought you. <laughs> Welcome back. We are the Film Drifters. Our show provides film and TV reviews from two guys that make, watch, and love movies. I'm Myron, and of course, joining me each week is Will. That was an interesting pause on the of course. Are you is that disappointing or are you happy? D- don't 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 read too much into the pause. It doesn't mean anything or or does it? But I was what ooh. pause? It got edited out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's just I'm for here. dramatic effect. You should have been like whoosh, of course, will. Sorry, was that too much? You're always too much. Oh, okay. But well. that's why we love you. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> well, who's that voice talking right there? Who Myron? is that voice? That Who is, is that? Mr. Steve O'Chang. Hey Welcome back to the show. Woo! Thanks for having me. It's fun back, to be back. Back safely in Los Angeles. I see you survived the plane yep. trip. Love it. Barely, barely. Had some altercations with some Trumpers, but you know. Oh, boy. We made it oh through. <laughs> you survived, though, which is good. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but yeah, um, I mean, some people got booted off the plane, but it was not me. So, <laughs> oh yeah, you, I did hear you say something about that. Crazy, yeah, I know. I that, that was quite a story. Like. Would you Would you like to share your story with our listeners, Stevo? Yeah, I'll try if I can remember it. I was kind of like half asleep on the flight, but um, we basically <laughs> had two folks that didn't want to put on a mask, and uh, the mm. flight attendant kept coming back and you know being insistent that they have to put on a mask, and it was like a night mint, like a red eye flight. And they kept flipping the lights on to catch the guys to see if they were in the masks. And uh, they were kind of joking around, like, you know, uh, jokingly saying, um, maybe I should just open the emergency hatch. I don't know why anyone would oh say boy. that. What but uh, the by the time we landed, I mean, there was a lot of scared kids on the flight, too. But by the time we landed, um, we got delayed at the terminal because we were waiting for the cops to get on the plane. And they had to uh, arrest the guys and take them off the plane. So. Oh, boy. And then but you're yeah. saying you almost got pistol whipped by a cop, right? From, from the gun yeah, in his holster? You know, the, the, yeah, the holstered guns are the exact eye level of someone seated. And uh, as they tried to grab the guy, it, the, the, the gun, the butt of the gun kind of whizzed past my face. So that was, oh. uh, yeah, that was a close call there. Police but brutality? Yes. I don't think so. <laughs> who, who jokes about that, the opening the emergency? Oh, that, like, that's, seriously? Like, yeah, that's cause for arrest for sure. For sure. 100%. Yeah. I was surprised that they even seated them in the emergency room because it was clear that they were kind of drunk. Uh, and oh, jeez. Okay, that just that, adds more. Yeah, they, they definitely boozed up right before we flew, too. So uh, that didn't help. <laughs> but uh, this, American Airlines will no longer serve alcohol on their flights. And I wonder if these two It was guys because were of, of these guys, yeah. <laughs> part of their now, contributions, yes. Now, random question here. Can you even open the, uh, the emergency exit door while the plane is in flight? I don't think you can, can you? I don't know. They didn't really inform us on that. They gave us like pictures with no words on them on how to open it. But yeah, I don't know. There was that um, United Airlines flight where uh, someone, as they were taxiing on the runway, opened the door and the, 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 uh, the slide, the inflatable slide inflated and he jumped off with his dog and ran across <laughs> and they got caught. But yeah, that was only like a month ago. <laughs> Wait, how, how did he have his dog on, his, on the plane? Was it like a support dog? ESA, yeah, but yeah. I guess the dog yeah. wasn't doing his job. Yeah. So. yeah. We are quickly yeah. becoming a podcast not about movies, but that's okay because sometimes <laughs> it's fun to talk about other stuff. Sometimes yeah. life writes more interesting movies than movies. Very, very mm-hmm. true. Most stories well in life are too good to be true. <laughs> yeah. What does that even mean? I don't know why I said that. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. 
All right. Steve-O is, has survived. He is back in LA and thankfully he made it so he can be on our show. Yes. But as yes. always, let's get started with a rundown on the latest in entertainment news. Hello world, Gal Gadot is here. And Uncle Handsome. Whoa. <laughs> <And> Ryan. <laughs> yeah. about movies is that they can make you feel every emotion and show you something you've never seen before i love showing people what a superhero can look like i like making any movie where i get to throw stuff i love that i'm finally directing my first movie i love that i'm finally directing my first movie jinx you owe me a coke oh my god halle berry owes me a coke I love seeing an incredible story come to an end. Hey, that's what I was gonna say. Oh, we're not gonna give away the ending right now, are we? Definitely All right. not. I'd like to talk about two things with you guys today. Just two? Just two. Okay. First thing is Netflix today announced their 2021 film slate. And it was like a drop the mic moment because they basically... Uh, released this huge list of amazing films that we uh, that, that we are excited to see that I am excited to see this year and uh, there are some pretty notable titles here uh, first off we got Red Notice with Ryan Reynolds The Rock and Gal Gadot we have another film that uh, is getting released starring Jennifer Lawrence Leonardo DiCaprio Ariana Grande Timothy Chalamet Kid Cudi and Meryl Streep Funny, I don't think Kid Cudi belongs with that list of uh, actors, but uh, hey, actually, he was pretty good in Bill and Ted's. But anyway, that movie is called uh, Don't Look Up, which looks pretty amazing. And also Lin-Manuel Miranda's direct- directorial debut called Tick, Tick, Boom, which looks amazing as well. Also, mm-hmm. Zack Schneider is releasing a sequel to his remake of Dawn of the Dead. This one is called Army of the Dead. And there's a whole bunch of other titles as well. They also released like this really cool two and a half minute trailer of all their films coming out. I just want to ask you guys, are you guys excited about any of the of the movies that, that you saw on the list or anything that you saw in the trailer itself? Well, I wanted to mention when you were telling about um, uh, Manuel Miranda's uh, directorial debut next to him is also Halle Berry. And I was like, hmm. what? Halle Berry directing? I don't yeah. know. What are your thoughts, I guess? I don't know. It well, seems... Who well, knows? It like, feels like yeah. if you're famous, you got a, you got a good shot at, at directing. So, uh, is, that the, yeah. is, that, is that the saying? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like Mel Gibson maybe started that trend or, or maybe earlier. Oh, what's his name? Why am I blinking? He, uh, he did Citizen Kane. Uh, Olsen, Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Welles. Yeah. Yeah. Orson Welles. True. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times I, I wonder if, you know, because a lot of actors, the good actors kind of self-direct themselves. And maybe mm-hmm. that's why it lends to, you know, a, a, a good transition into directing, maybe. Mm, got it, got it. Well, yeah. other than that, I mean, to say that, I think Don't Look Up looks pretty interesting. I have no idea what it's about, but the fact that I see Jennifer Lawrence, um, Kikati, and Leo with that beard. With a fake beard. <laughs> yeah, the that's fake not, beard. No, it's not. You think it's a real it's beard? It's got to be fake. It, yeah. Really? I, I'm looking at it right now. I don't think you right can actually to, grow that. <laughs> it does look well too perfectly trimmed. That's the dead giveaway. And it's like <laughs> colored in a very specific way. Like that's not his natural color. 
Ah, interesting. I okay. So it's I have interesting. No idea, though, but it's interesting yeah. you bring that movie up. Directed by Adam McKay, written by Adam McKay. So there's mm-hmm. a good chance this is a political satire. And uh, also rounding out the list, on top of the names that we mentioned earlier, Chris Evans, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, Matthew Perry. It's like, okay, this is like an abundance of riches, of riches here, and I'm excited for this one. <laughs> Definitely excited. Uh, I was just going to say, um, I don't recognize most of these properties. So it's interesting to me, Same. like, are these, you know, uh, new IP, intellectual property, like new, new like uh, spec scripts, or are they based on books or... Comic books, I were kind of used to seeing that with uh, things on Netflix or, you know, on um, uh, like theatrical release. You, you're mm. kind of used to that. And so a lot of these uh, titles uh, I'm not familiar with. So I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but that's a Might good thing, new, though, right? New, new. The new, new. Because, I mean, new, we're not getting Transformers 5, but seeing new works that, you know, aren't based off of IP. Would, would you say that's a good thing? Uh, it could be. Um, I'm not sure. It could be, you know. It, it's it's difficult to say. I don't know. Are you saying that you don't that. support originality? <laughs> um. <laughs> like like title <laughs> titles like titles like Escape from Spiderhead. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, I see Kissing Booth Chris- three, so clearly they do have IP. Uh, and the Princess Switch three. I'm in the room and the one with Jason Momoa called Sweet Girl. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there is the other uh, movie based on IP. Will's favorite movie series of all time, To All the Boys. No. Oh, gosh. Part three will be coming out this year. <laughs> Please stop. Just, okay, let's move on now. We're done with the rundown. <laughs> you only say that because you know it's true, Will. What? No. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, Just watch. Gosh. When we, it's not if, but when we review part three, Will, I know that you will be in tears. <laughs> It is a and fact. Tears of hurting having to do the review. Tears of joy. <laughs> anyway. All right, moving along. <laughs> so, Please. one more thing. I want to talk about Minari. So, I don't know if you guys got uh, an email from my wife who, God yes. bless her heart, found out about a free screening of Minari happening February 1st. Free. You get to watch it at home online. And she signed up. Yet. Really? She signed you up? I know she did, but I, I haven't been able to. I haven't gotten any email though. I hope she got my email right. <laughs> okay. Well, if not, you could watch it here or something. We'll figure it out. But uh, yeah, um, yeah. So this isn't the first free sc- uh, free screening that they're that the producers are hosting. They did another one, or they have one coming up on January thirteenth. So it looks like this is like a grassroots marketing campaign that they're putting together right before the Oscars. Cause apparently it's supposed to go into wide release sometime in February. What do you guys think of this? This is just really interesting that they're doing this. Do you guys think it'll work? Uh, I think it could just because, um, you know, it is yeah. such a niche film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try to watch it four times of Sundance. Didn't work out, <laughs> but, um, I think that, uh, it's, it's got like, um, it's a foreign language film, right? Yeah. It's like most, well, Korean. no, is but that correct. Or, well, no, no, it's not, that's a whole other thing that we should talk about. That's, that's the debate, and it's yeah. annoying yeah. because it's American. It's so I believe annoying. it's it's yes. All I right, totally so agree. for our listeners who don't know, Minari is up for best foreign language film at the Golden Globes, even though it is made in America and a movie about the American dream with an American crew and lots of American actors in it. Apparently, it won't qualify to just get nominated for Best Picture, which is an absolute travesty, in my opinion, because a movie like Inglorious Bastards actually had more 
uh, German in it, and this movie has Korean. If you think about it, so and much yet more that German. movie was nominated for best. Every picture. World War II film with Germans, come on, it's still <laughs> American film. It's so, it's it, it's actually really aggravating to to, to just hear that. It's like, yeah. oh well, fifty percent of the time they're speaking Korean. It's like that yeah. that doesn't matter. It's it's that an America. It's made in America. Yeah. It's yeah. I think obviously this is a travesty, but it's gotten so much press. That it's actually putting a lot more eyes on the movie. So in that sense, I think it could be a good thing. You know, it's one of those things where uh, no, like bad press can still be good press. I guess is, is, it, it, basically working yeah. for them rather than against them. Yeah, because people can see the fact that yes, this 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 is an American film. This is this is a U.S. production film. Yeah. So get over it, yeah. Hollywood foreign press. Like it, stop trying that to way, change it. Yeah, and in that way, I think it's a really good idea that uh, the Minari team are trying to um, do these screenings because uh, right now the narrative is shaped from the perspective of this controversy. And hopefully through these screenings, they could get word of mouth that, oh, the film is actually really good. You should seriously consider it and um, try to, cut, try to uh, take control over the narrative of what this film is about. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. All right, a look at future episodes now. Next up... Next week, we will be reviewing the documentary Assassins, directed by Ryan White, as well as the film Pieces of a Woman, starring Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf. And joining us again for those reviews is Kat Nakova. She was with us when we reviewed Wonder Woman 1984, as well as the film Soul. And in the middle of those reviews, I'm actually really, really, really looking forward to this. We have Joe Seo on from uh, Cobra Kai. He will be joining us and uh, we'll be talking a little bit about the show, what it was like to be working with Ralph Macchio and William Zabka, and talk a little bit about the stunts and all the, the cool fight choreography that he got to uh, partake in. So really, really looking forward to that. The week after, we're still determining what we will be reviewing. But the week after that, we're also really excited to bring you a review of the film Minari. And uh, that's a film that all of us have been really trying to see for a while. We just talked about it. I'm so happy that we can finally discuss this on the show. So that's a look at what's coming up. Any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or reviews of content, drop us a line at contactus at thefilmdrifters.com. And please tell your friends about us. Our podcast can be found on the Apple Podcast app. Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, as well as Spotify. And now on to our main event. Last week, the three of us went through part one of our top ten list. We went through films ten through six. And today we'll be rounding out our top five where Will, Steve-O, and I will be going through numbers five through one. Really, really excited. In this episode, we will be revealing our number one films of the year. And so to kick things off, I wanted to ask you, Will, what was your number five favorite film of the year? Woo, my number five. Here we go. It is King of Staten Island. You okay? Uncle, yeah. What, what do you mean? Yeah. You gonna be okay without me here? You don't think I could survive here without you? Okay, just don't be a dick, okay? Like, be nice to mom, okay? Don't give her a hard time. She deserves a break. I always give her a break. When's, when am I gonna get my break? Like... What are you talking about? All anyone ever does is worry about you. I was ignored my entire childhood because of you. Oh yeah, I forgot that my childhood was so dandy. Okay, you don't get to act crazy your whole life just because dad died, okay? At least you got to know him. Well, you're lucky you didn't get to know him, okay? Because that's why you're almost normal. If you got to know him, you would have known that he was like the fucking coolest guy ever. This was a great dark comedy, guys, you know? Based on some real events. 
The synopsis is about a guy named Scott, played by Pete Davidson, who has a case of arrested development since his firefighter dad died. You know, he spends his day smoking uh, weed and dreaming of being a tattoo artist until events forced him to grapple with his grief and take, you know, take his first steps forward in life. So that was my number five, King of Staten Island, you know. Yeah, there was a lot of heart to this, and there were some kind of darker moments. I remember the opening scene of this film is when uh, he is just driving, and all of a sudden you see him close his eyes, and you're wondering if he's going to kill himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, he quickly recovers and goes home, and then the laughs start. But it's just interesting that it started a comedy. A comedy started off with kind of a dark scene. And, uh, dark yeah. comedy. Yeah, yeah he, was that, that's what he was really good in this, too. Like, really, really, really yeah. good. He was very in the moment and uh, just played off of the other actors really, really well. So uh, that's a good pick yeah. there. Yeah, you can completely tell just the way how he was carrying the character, how there is a sense of indifference. Like, you know there's a lot going on, like, in his mind. You can kind of feel it. And just his face, his expression, it just looks so indifferent. And, and, and like the, in a lot of the in a lot of the scenes, you know, when even when he was mm-hmm. speaking his dialogue, it just felt like he was still even because he was still getting over, you know, the the loss of his father after how many years? It was a good amount of years, though. And yeah. so it, it was just seeing how it's wearing down on him. How yeah. much it he, he allowed himself to let it wear down on him that much. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty. It's pretty sad how it degraded his life, basically. Yeah, and you really saw how it affected his family, his sister, his mom, how they all had to deal with his issues and the toll it takes on them. And it's similar, I think, in real life when someone is dealing with something, something, a condition, depression, alcoholism, and you see what kind of a a burden that is for the people around that particular person that's struggling. So, uh, yeah. Really, really good choice there. Would you say it felt like a a Judd Apatow film or did it feel like Judd Apatow kind of grew up a Mm. bit? (laughs) <laughs> that's a good mm. point it, it is it's definitely a Judd Apatow film um, mm. not as funny as his other films but still very much in that vein uh, did yeah. you what, what do you think uh, Steve did you see this one I did not it's on my watch list though okay yeah yeah got it Th- got that's it. why I was asking yeah <laughs> yeah so very interesting take I'd love to hear your thoughts after you see it actually yeah. um, all right sure. Moving on to your number five film, Steve-O, what do you got? Sure. So um, I had kind of mixed up my top five after I started to do our exercise of, you know, writing our, our little piece about what we liked about each film. And um, I'd say my number five, my new number five, is The Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix mm. by uh, Aaron Sorkin. Um, nice. Did we talk about this film yet? Was it in someone else's top ten before? No, but I think you'll be hearing about it quite a bit in this episode for sure. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll just kick off. Like, uh, it's a courtroom drama. I mean, I'm sure. I'm really curious to see how you guys summarize the film as well, because it's such a dense film. But um, mm. my my take from it was that it's a courtroom drama about uh, the political trial of the by the Nixon administration to peg a group of protest group leaders with inciting inciting a riot in um, during the Democratic National Convention in the 1960s. And um, it's eerily revel- relevant with uh, the Capitol insurrection last week and, you know, the Black Lives Matters protests throughout the, the year. And so it, it felt maybe c- because of the relevancy, it, it kind of rang a little bit more true to me, you know, mm. as a film. And yeah. um, I think that's probably why it, it uh, landed on my top five. Um, yeah. It stars Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, um, John Carroll Lynch and others as various protester group leaders. Mm. And uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen as Bobby Seale, who's the leader of the Black Panther movement. And um, it, it was just really interesting to see how 
uh, they brought in the political aspect of it where um, the Nixon administration wanted to pin this on the Black Panther movement and just arbitrarily brought him into, uh, into this, this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And so th- that was really intriguing to see that kind of angle. Um, yeah. There was also great performances by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who played a federal prosecutor with mm-hmm. Art Gold. Yeah. And, um, but I think my favorite character of, of this, you know, super talented cast was probably a Spielberg favorite, Mark Rylance, as the oh, yeah. uh, protester group's yes. attorney, the defense yep. attorney. Yeah, he just <laughs> brought, you know, this whole other level of introspective and um, calm to the character, you know? Like, yep. he yes. just had that look on his face of, like, what is going on? What is this circus? And uh, I think he was well cast for that role. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He played the pro bono lawyer, William Kunstler. Yes, yes, yes. It's a very so interesting good. name there. So, yeah, so he was good. great. He was wow. the biggest highlight for me. Yeah, same yeah. here, same here. Um, yeah, so overall, I think it, it was like a compelling underdog film of uh, how a courtroom could be used as like a political weapon against political dissidents and uh, really relevant with the year of 2020. And um, like I said before, <laughs> there were powerful performances across the board. And there were a lot of like really tense moments, uh, chilling moments even, uh, especially like the the bounding and gagging of Bobby Seale, who's the oh, definitely the that was the, just cringeworthy. Yeah, and like you know who will stand I, up yeah. for this injustice? And finally, Joseph Gordon Levitt's yes. character does stand up, and like that moment was just like yes, we needed that. We needed a hero fighting against the system because the defense side they have no weapons. All their tools have been taken away from them, and it's almost like a, a mock trial. Uh, I, I also thought that, um, you know, the, the collection, the cacophony if you, of, of characters, if you will, on the defense side, uh, one, I think they were trying to show just how uh, disparate each group were in terms of, uh, so basically the court case, um, the federal prosecution was basically saying that all these organizers grew, uh, formed one huge group to protest um, at the Democratic National Convention. And uh, Mark Rylance's character, the defense uh, attorney, was trying to prove that that's not the case. These are completely different groups. And it was really interesting to see how each of these characters, you know, showed their, syst- their, their systems of beliefs and how it was very dramatically different, even though they might be on the same side of, you know, being against the war. Um, despite that, like, all their political interests and belief systems are completely different. And yeah. um, it was just interesting to see how uh, each of the characters have felt like were representative of a certain, you know, belief system. Like Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character represents law and order, if you will, you know. And um, mm. the I corrupt love judge, Social like, Coin. Yeah. yeah, he was yeah, so he great, was great in this. In this. Like, he wasn't Borat. He was really toned down, but like, I don't know. He just brought a really nice nuance super, to it. Yes, yes, super intellectual too. Yeah, Amazing. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So this was on your list as well, right, Will? Yes, it was. This was actually my number four, and basically Steve-O just did it for me right there. <laughs> just how <laughs> how amazing this film was, and I had to put it up a notch right there, so it was at number four for me. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was going to be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. 
and then I think this is also on your list too as well, my, right, Myron? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously, Steve-O did a great job kind of talking about what this movie what was in this movie. Um, I'm not really usually a fan of on-the-nose political films, <laughs> um, but this is very on-the-nose, yet I didn't mind it at all. Um, I was actually all in on it from the beginning. This movie is loaded with Sorkinisms, and that yes. could be a good and bad thing, a good or bad thing. And in this case, it was a very good thing. I mean, uh, in, what, I mean, what is a Sorkinism? I guess is uh, some of the question you guys may, might be asking. And I'll tell you what I saw in this movie that were obvious Sorkinisms. <clears throat> Dialogue that's fire like a machine gun, where the tempo and the rhythm of what's being said almost matters as much as what is being said. Character meetings and conversations that seem a little bit too contrived at times, but often lead to amazing cinematic moments. Like there's that scene where Joe Gordon-Levitt just so happened to be out with his daughters and runs into like Sasha Baron Cohen at a park, if you remember. And you're like, okay, come on. That didn't really happen. But that moment was so (laughs) well-written. It was okay. With all that said, I still love it. He gets away with a lot. And he does a lot of things in this movie that you're not supposed to do, but he gets away with it because he's a master at his craft. It's kind of like the way Tarantino violates so many rules in his movies. He like includes voiceover when you're not supposed to. He relies on it way too heavily. He breaks all these rules. He makes the scenes overtly long, but if you know the rules, you can break them. And Sorkin does quite a bit of that here. Um, and here's, I think, maybe the most honest compliment I can give this movie is it makes you really, really, really feel something. Because a lot of times when a movie tries to manipulate your emotions, your first reaction reflexively is to turn off, saying, no, I'm not going to... I'm not going to feel that feeling as strongly as you want me to. But there is a scene in this film, and Steve, you talked about it, when the leader of the Black Panthers is bound and gagged in a courtroom. And this is something that actually happened. When you see that, you just feel rage, and you feel like a great injustice has happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, that was such a well-written and directed scene. And I have to agree with you guys. Sasha Baron Cohen, who played Abby Hoffman, was just picture perfect in this and it's a such a it's such a 180 degree turn from his other comedic roles it's like this guy is a chameleon and i I don't think he gets enough credit for being such an amazing actor so uh that's why trial of the chicago seven made the made my list at number two oh high up there yeah nice man i'm not gonna lie it was at two but then it it, as i thought about the other films in my in my slate it kind of got bumped down but i had to keep it in the top five for sure that was, a, that was a huge bump. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. All right. So we are at, I mean, we've talked about a few films. We're going to jump around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we get to some more picks, uh, we're doing something fun this episode. We're having past guests of our show come on and let us know what their favorite movie or documentary was of this past year. And so uh, Kat Loznikova, who was with us a couple of episodes ago, she is here to give us her number one film of the year. Here she is. Hey guys, it's Kat, your friend of the pod. And my top film of 2020 is This Is Paris. Now, I know what you're thinking. But for a year like 2020, this documentary was very timely. This raw and intimate portrait of Paris Hilton showed us that you can't judge a book by its cover, and while we all have our opinions, none of us can deny her being an icon. Love her or hate her, her imprint on pop culture is undeniable, and it paved the way for so many pseudo-celebrities and influencers. I mean, she is credited with inventing the selfie. Getting a new look into her life and the trauma that shaped her persona really proves that 
just because you think you know someone, you never really do. So during a year of us sitting at home and aimlessly scrolling, it was very refreshing to be reminded that not everything you see is what it is. And for that, this is my top pick for 2020. Thanks. All right, we are back. Kat just gave us her number one pick, which was actually a documentary. So uh, thank you so much for your selection. All right, Will, you've given us your number five film, your number four film. What is your number three best film of the year? Oh, so my number three is funny enough, like uh, or similar to what Kat's number one film, a documentary. My number three is a documentary uh, called Robin's Wish. Yeah, there's a sadness, and then you have to go, and then there's also, um, there's also hope. I mean, the sadness, it's always like, yeah, you wish they hadn't happened, but they did. And the purpose is to make you different. It's what they call a Buddhist gift. It's that idea of you're back, and you realize the thing that matters are others. Way beyond yourself. Self goes away. Ego, bye-bye. You realize there are a lot, a lot of amazing people out there to be grateful for. A loving God. And that, other than that, good luck. That's what life is about. This film broke me, and I loved every minute of it. It, Uh. it, It's it's the story of what really happened to Robin Williams as media gave false stories during the time of his suicide. People were told to believe it was depression and his career in shambles. But the truth was he was battling a serious disease called Lewy body dementia. And I've mentioned before in our last episode, Lewy body is the second most common type of progressive dementia after Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Robin's wife, Susan, was the main kind of like the, the, the main engine, the narrator for or the narrator for this documentary. And you could really tell how much she loved Robin as her relentless tenacity in unraveling the truth of Robin's condition and knowing that the media had it wrong and wanting to make it right. This documentary didn't focus on so much for me the brilliance of uh, and reputation of Robin's career or even much because you already know how astounding and brilliant Robin is. I think it took it further on a deeper level emotionally um, exuding him as a humble, inspiring and kind human being. You really see how hard he is on himself when it comes to his craft and making sure he gives you his best, meaning like to those that 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 he's uh, showing whether it's performance or love or or just just sentiment to like you really get a glimpse of him uh, getting to know who Robin is and how his dementia changed him, devastating those who were close to him. Like, oh man, it's 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 such a heart aching story, but mm-hmm. at the same time, like, you know, you you just have such a huge appreciation of of what he gave us, I guess, as as an audience, mm-hmm. as yeah. as as uh, for in entertainment, and also like, I mean, he said, I think I remember he's, I think he's been on like five. Uh, to, uh, he went on five trips to Iraq for the tours for for the for the military, you wow. know, going out there and and really giving them everything he had to mm-hmm. to to give them all the hope and energy and joy uh, from all the things that they have to deal with. And like Robin's, like even if he was sick or or even if like you know something like where where he was advised maybe like hey you know I don't think you're in the best condition right now. Like he's like no I, I nope I got to do it. You know he, he just had that mm-hmm. mentality. To, mm-hmm. to really please others right so you guys have you guys seen it yet not yet no, no. not yet i definitely it's on my list man yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's so um, good so it's obviously so good. from the way you're talking about it it sounds as though the condition went undiagnosed right like he was struggling with something but they didn't know what it was is that yeah. safe to say 
And Susan knew, though, like it, it wasn't like Robin isn't a man who would just do suicide. He wouldn't just kill himself like that. He wouldn't mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where it led towards her really, really like fighting to figure out what it really was. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, undiagnosed. Um, and, and I think he did do all the procedures, too. He went to the doctors. They did do like like some diagnosis here and there. But they're like, oh, there's nothing. We can't find anything, you know. Interesting. Like, we don't know. Like it's it's I think you're just depressed. It's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Great choice there. We'll be Thank sure you. to catch up and watch that film. You should. All yes. right, Steve O, back over to you. What is your number four film of the year? My number four, um, I think Will already mentioned this in last week's episode. Uh Let Them All Talk. Um, I think also on mm-hmm. Netflix. Uh this <laughs> is a, a Soderbergh film. It's HBO and, Max. Um, Oh, it's HBO Max? Okay. Let them yeah, all talk yeah. on HBO Max. <laughs> Sorry, all these streaming platforms, there's so many that we have to keep up, keep up to date with. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so uh, Let Them All Talk is a Soderbergh film, which I didn't realize till after I saw the film and saw the credits roll. Mm. But um, yeah, it's about a millennial... Okay, so my description might be a little different than how Will described it. But uh, it's a film about a millennial nephew who, um, along with a group of baby boomer women who have become a stranger over the decades, take a crossing across the Atlantic on the Queen Mary 2 so that their framed author friend can receive a prestigious award. That's just like plot-wise, if, if there's yep. a plot that kind of sums up what this film is about. Yeah, um, that sums it up mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, <laughs> spot on. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to make sure there's that generational difference too. But um, despite not being a baby boomer or a woman or a menopausal, I still found this film surprisingly relatable. Uh, Candace Bergman's in it, Diane West, and of course Meryl Streep plays the famed author Alice Higgs, or Alice Hughes. And um, the issues that they're dealing with, um, you know, faded friendships, pursuit of career, societal expectations and norms, uh, the meaning of life even. Um, it's all in this film, and um, despite the generational gap, I feel like these issues are relatable at whatever stage in life that you might be going through. Um, I think uh, after watching this film, um, you know, it... A lot of the films that I've been watching feel a little bit more heavy-handed, you know, or like the themes are dark or... Um, it, so this film, you know, it felt like a breath of fresh air, like literally, because they're on the Queen Mary 2 and you can you mm-hmm. literally feel the breeze going by. Oh, yeah. And, um, it just made you want to go on a crossing. Not a cruise, but a crossing. And uh, um, I think also the, um, uh, the way that this film was written or not written, um, the way that it was filmed... Uh, was also refreshing. It felt kind of like, um, uh, it felt um, like an improv. The whole movie felt like an improv where the actors Definitely. were kind of just spitballing back and forth and they had a subject matter that they had to hit, but you know, it, it felt refreshing in that way. It didn't feel stifled or performed. Can you hand me the yeah. manuscript that's over there on, sure. on the couch? And a, and a pen? Uh-huh. Oh, the red pen? Yeah. Two pens. Thank you. Here you go. Is uh, is this your new book? Yeah, this is it. What's it about? Uh, it is about trying to catch lightning in a bottle for a second time. Um, I would say that uh, the the way that the, this Soderbergh approaches film, it felt like it wasn't necessarily like he was writing a script to fulfill a certain plot line. 
it felt more like he was curating a collection of people and then just kind of threw them on a boat like a video game and just kind of wanted to see what they did. And uh, it was really interesting to see some of these characters, you know, collide into each other quite literally. One of my favorite mm -hmm. scenes is when um, Tyler, played by Lucas Hedges, uh, is going on a walk on the promenade or whatever you call it in the boat and with the literary agent played by... Um, Gemma uh, Chan. Gemma, Gemma Chan. Chan, yep. And uh, they literally bump into Meryl Streep's character and Meryl Streep's character doesn't know that her agent is on the boat, let alone that her nephew is in cahoots with her. But yes. um, that was such a great moment of like, oh crap. And, and you know, as a moviegoer, you're trained to think, okay, you know, um, calamity ensues. But it didn't ensue because Meryl Streep's character was at a totally different point in her life and she interpreted that situation so drift differently. And I think these kind of twists and turns with, you know, character development um, really kept this film, on, you know, the, kept the viewer on your toes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Very Agreed. good pick. Yeah, thank you. All right. I have some catching up to do on my list, actually. I haven't given my number five or number four pick. <laughs> yeah. As I mentioned before, we are jumping around quite a bit. Uh, my number five film is Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. And uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing a little bit more about this later. So this movie wasn't even on my list uh, the day before our picks were due for best of the year. I squeezed this in at the very last moment. And honestly, because of the heavy handed, not heavy handed, because of the heavy subject matter, I was a little bit hesitant to watch it. Um, my wife is due uh, with our second boy. Um, maybe in about six weeks or so. So obviously watching a movie. I know, right? But uh, well, yeah, watching a movie that deals with abortion was not something that I wanted oh, to geez. do. But at the same Frick. time, I felt like this was necessary. <laughs> yeah, so I did have that Wait, conversation. What? She was like, what are you watching tonight? I was like, oh, never, rarely, sometimes, always. Uh, what's that movie about? Oh, it's about an abortion. And she just looks at me, good night. And she just went upstairs. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. This pl the plot of this movie deals with an abortion. But this movie is not about abortions. Yeah. I know that sounds weird, and it doesn't make any political statements. It doesn't matter if you're pro-life or pro-choice. This movie is about an, a, a girl having an abortion, but I promise you, you're not thinking about the politics of abortions at all in this movie. This is a journey of between two brave teenage girls, and the entire time, all you're thinking about in this movie, at least what I thought about is, Man, it sucks to be a woman sometimes in, uh. in, in, in this world. Like you have so much you have to fight against, so much adversity. And then on top of that, to be a young woman. And to, on top of that, be a young woman in a small town where you're pregnant. And all you're thinking, all I was thinking is, man, these girls are so freaking resourceful and brave. So it was a harrowing, harrowing journey. Some of the most heartbreaking moments that I've seen in films this year we talked about that last week in uh, most emotional scene of the year when uh, our lead actress who by the way it's her first time acting uh, her name is Sydney Flanagan in real life but uh, she's basically being asked a series of questions by a nurse and told to respond with the words never rarely sometimes or always and in this scene she just breaks down where we really get into kind of what makes her tick all the pain that she's endured and it's so minimal and so understated but you see her entire life's journey on her face with every one word answer that she gives. So really, really, really powerful stuff. I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about your relationships, okay? Because they can affect your health. Did you know that? No? All right. So I'm going to ask you some questions. They can be really personal. 
and all you have to do is answer either never, rarely, sometimes, or always. It's kind of like multiple choice, but it's not a test. Okay. Okay? In the past year, your partner has refused to wear a condom. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Sometimes. Okay. And your partner messes with your birth control or tries to get you pregnant when you don't want to be. Never, <coughs> rarely, sometimes, always. Uh, never. Okay. Your partner's threatened or frightened you. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Why are you asking me this? I want to make sure that you're safe. Uh, I'm proud that it made my list. <laughs> it so pushed, yeah, it pushed some movies off my list, oh. uh, including uh, <laughs> "Let Them All Talk," which was I was, which I was also a little sad to lose. But uh, yeah, Will, you had a question. Well, so like, so from what you you're saying about this film as well, it seems like, or at least from I remember when we discussed it, uh, I was trying to explain this actually to my girlfriend too, where it's really looking into the experience of a woman and and their you know situation of when it comes to these uh, being pregnant and whatnot in a, in a very like just just the just the reality of like what they have to go through sometimes yeah. would you say like it's really character driven in that sense yeah extremely character driven yeah. yeah. um and you know it only hints at who got her pregnant there's one idea that it could be the uh, father and we talked a little bit about that also it there's an idea that maybe it was uh uh, one of the boys at her school, uh, which this boy in particular was heckling her when she was performing at like a school talent show. So we're not really quite fully sure uh, who got her pregnant. But once again, that's also just a side thing because the whole thing is, well, it doesn't matter how she got pregnant. Yeah, She's pregnant. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. the premise is guys are heathens and we got to really <laughs> <laughs> we got to watch this woman's like journey and understand well, yeah. for, for men and like yeah, what the, yeah. what the journey it, of that. It is interesting because, you know, um, the male gaze is, you know, it's embedded in everything we know about art, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like uh, in Titanic, when Leonardo DiCaprio's character, you know, uh, paints Kate Winslet's character like one of his friends. Very girls. good point. Like it's, it's embedded. It's, it's part of the DNA of art, if you yeah. will. And with this film, it's telling this unique perspective, uh, this unique story from a, of the female gaze, from the female perspective. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's why it resonates so well. And that's why it feels so uh, different and fresh. And at the same time, you know, you see how, um, how vulnerable they are in a male-dominated society. All right. So that was my number five film, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Just so I can catch up to you guys. I'm, I'm going to also chime in with my number four film, which is Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Ooh. We are born lost. Then we're found but we're all just lost, am I right? Oh my God. However, in the darkness comes light. Tala Ann Wilder and Abraham Eugene Trenchleifen, who do not look like siblings. <laughs> you see their optimism, their selflessness. It's in their blood. And Tala, there's something that a lot of people here don't know about you, but they should. I hope you don't mind. It's not just time and money that Tala has given to so many charitable causes. She has also donated of herself bone marrow. That's right. How did he know that? She gave hers to her baby brother, Nico, saving his life. 
But now it's time for us to give to you. Here you are. Standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. And it may be frightening and filled with doubt. But always remember, you are not alone. Everyone here is your family. We are your world. And we will cheer you on with delight in our eyes as you achieve your wildest dreams. So raise a glass. I had so much fun in this movie. Basically, you know, if you've seen the trailer, it's basically Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a rom-com Groundhog Day, right? So you would think that it's, yes, yeah. yeah, modernized. You would think it's just maybe a carbon copy of the original, but there are so many extra layers to this movie. Um, the reason why I think this movie is so good is that this film is a masterclass of balancing tone. Here's why. Mm. First, you have Andy Samberg in what looks like an, a, like a traditional Andy Samberg role, and that's what the movie sets up, right? That is that opening scene where he's in bed with his girlfriend, mm-hmm. and he's playing very much an Andy Samberg-like character, but then it all changes. There's like extra layers to that character that we don't see at first, right? It also perfectly balances the campiness factor that comes along with the MacGuffin, which in this case is a cave that somehow causes an infinite time loop. It, it's stupid. It's cheesy, but it embraces it, right? Yeah. Uh, and it also combines with that a slapstick tone of a sitcom. And then it also really examines the backstories and struggles of the main characters in a new and fresh way. Sarah in this film has trouble committing, and she's kind of a hot mess in so much of her life. And uh, it really examines why she's like that. And it also really examines why Niles is like the way that he is. There's some, of course, really laugh out loud moments, which is to be expected. But what wasn't expected for me was this extra layer where it talks about repercussions, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think you're in an infinite time loop, you can do whatever the hell you want and wake up next day and everything's fine. But no, you have to live with what you did, even though no one else remembers, you know. So I feel like in some way that's like a... Uh, a metaphor for a life right oh. so much there's so much stuff that we get away with that no one else knows about and you think that you get away with it but no you don't because you still have to live with what you did right yeah so in that sense i think it's a good metaphor for real life and i wasn't expecting to get something like that out of a movie like this mm. i really enjoyed it this was in like <laughs> pandemic was becoming like too much to bear i think it was like in april and i was like i need to watch a good funny movie yeah. and this came out on Hulu and we watched it and we loved it. So that is my number four film. Yeah, that's great. It's like a, you know, you're, it's like a vacation to Palm Springs in a way, in a weird <laughs> time loopy way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So that is my number four film. We're going to take a little bit, little bit of a break here to hear what Julian Cisneros, a composer friend of Will's, what his number one film is of the year. I genuinely gave a lot of thought to this. And at first, I didn't have a best picture for 2020 until I saw, at the very end of the year, The Sound of Metal. Um, Hands down the best movie of 2020 for me. All right. Great choice, Julian. Hopefully, we'll be seeing and hearing more of you on our show in 2021. Moving on with our list now. First, I want to go over to you, Steve-O. What is your number three favorite film of the year? Cool. So my number three is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And uh, I know that this has made everyone else's list here as well. Um, I'll just briefly say it. Uh, it's based on a play by August William about a famous black singer, Ma Rainey, and her band. 
and their experience mm. of racism and exploitation by the predominantly white music industry. Uh, that was my take mm. on the film. Um, you know, the main star of this film uh, isn't necessarily Ma Rainey. <laughs> it was Chadwick Boseman. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. He was a cinematic whirlwind in this, um, stealing every scene, whether he's speaking or not. I mean, there were like moments where he just gives a look. It's just a look, and he's already stole the scene, you know? Mm. And um, it, it was really interesting because I only knew him from like the Black Panther films. And uh, to see that melt away and all you saw was his character, Levy Green, uh, it was just a wonder to watch. And uh, we all know that um, at the time he was suffering from stage four cancer and mm -hmm. during this performance. And I think we mentioned it earlier, but uh, yeah, he used that physicality of um, just that, that frailness, if you will, but he didn't feel frail, you know? He, he looked oh, yeah. really thin, but uh, he felt like a, a hurricane on the stage. And um, when he's talking about the pain and injustice of Levy's character throughout his lifetime, you can feel that pain. And I, I, I'm so curious to, to know if he used that pain and in, injected that. Because that feeling of injustice, it felt so yeah. raw and, and organic. The man come in here, call you a boy, tell you to get up off your ass and rehearse it. You ain't had nothing to say except, yes, sir. <laughs> I can say yes, sir, to whoever I please. What you got to do with it? I know how to handle white folks. I've been handling them for 32 years. Now you gonna tell me how to do it? Just cause I say yes, sir, don't mean I'm spooked up by him. I know what I'm doing. Let me handle it my way. We're gonna handle it then. You know, you're always messing with somebody. Always agitate somebody with that old philosophy bullshit you be talking. You stay out of my way about what I do and say. I'm my own person. Just let me alone. All right, all right, Levy, you right. I apologize. Ain't none of my business. You spooked up by the white man. <laughs> all right, see, that's the shit I'm talking about. Y'all back up and leave Levy alone. Oh, come on, Levy. We was all just having fun. Tell you the way he said nothing about you. He ain't said about me. You just taking it all wrong. <laughs> ain't meant nothing by it, Levy. Levy got to be Levy. And you don't need nobody messing with him about the white Yeah, almost like the cancer was an injustice to him. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah, And maybe the pain, yeah. That he was dealing with in real life, maybe that that was in there somehow. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised because yeah, man, I I think even though he knew that, it's just just he's gonna use it, you know. Yeah, uh, and and just to really punch it even further, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like I'm gonna go out with a bang, and that he did. So yeah, yeah, a big gosh, <laughs> big bang, big uh, bang. Yes, yeah. I just want to point out one other thing. I know that um yeah, uh, what's it called that. Chadwick Boseman really stole the show here, but I have to say Viola Davis, um, she yeah. also, like, you know, she she stood up toe-to-toe -to -toe with Chadwick Boseman's uh, performance in this film. Uh, she was like an anchor, and um, it was really interesting to see the perspective shift on her. You start off thinking, oh, she's just a diva, you know? And a diva is, is basically how I interpret it was uh, someone who um, thinks they deserve this respect and attention when they probably don't. But then as the, the story continues and the character evolves and you see how ferociously she fights for her stuttering nephew to have a say, to be able to introduce the song and um, you know ha have a place in, in the song that she created, it was really interesting to see like, you know, no, it's not necessarily that she doesn't um, deserve the respect. She knows she has earned it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she's trying to and fight for it like constantly yeah. she has to fight for it because she knows the position that she's in as a black person you yeah. know in the industry or just in general in where they are in the world you know so. yeah basically what you said you summed it up perfectly well 
So yeah, I just wanted to point that out because I know everyone's going to be talking about Chadwick Boseman, but Viola Davis was phenomenal. This is, and so was, were the rest of the cast. It's yeah. just another one of those films where every single cast member, every single actor in this film did a tremendous job. Yeah. And so that, that's why it's, it's up there on my list as number, number three. Nice. All right. Super. All right. Great choice. Great choice. All right. Well, since you've already discussed your number three film, I'm going to go ahead and discuss mine. Fine. My number three go. film. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Myron. What did you I number you three too, film? <laughs> uh, my number three film is The Half of It. Mm. And uh, this movie really caught me off guard. Yeah, uh, quite a few like rom-coms really you know, got the best of me this year and really kind of took my walls down, I guess you could say. But uh, this movie is about a, a closeted uh, teenager named Ellie Chu. She's cash-strapped, and she luckily is extremely smart. So she you know, is someone that like writes essays for other students uh, in her class. And in this case, she's asked to write love letters for a jock. Uh, she doesn't expect to become his friend, but then uh, there are a few extra elements here. He actually ends up falling for his crush. So in a sense, it is like a lesbian Cyrano de Bergerac story. But there are way more layers to this film than that. So the director of the film, her name is Alice Wu. She, her, her uh, directorial debut actually came, I believe, 16 years ago with a movie called Saving Face. And uh, I, I watched this film, really, really appreciated it. And this is her sophomore effort. And I think it was really well worth the, well worth the wait. The ensemble cast, which was filled with relative newcomers like Leah Lewis, who is our character, uh, our main character, Daniel Dimer and Alexis Lemire. Hopefully I didn't butcher her last name, but they were all really, really great. The performances felt very much lived in, like they were they were just their character. They didn't have to act. And they all served the smartly written script beautifully. Um, the relationships were all touching in their own way and completely believable, especially the one between Ellie and Paul. And this movie really just does hinge upon their relationship to each other. Um, their relationship evolves multiple times in multiple ways throughout the film. They start out as strangers and they have an agreement in place and they become friends. And then there's a question like, okay, are they maybe going to be more than friends? Because uh, obviously Daniel Dimer's character starts to kind of fall for her when she's actually falling for Aster Flores. So obviously there's a very interesting love triangle here. And it kind of explodes in some interesting new ways. And this whole angle of uh, Daniel Dimer's character, Paul Munsky, how he wants to open like a sausage stuffing factory <laughs> is completely <laughs> random. But completely unique, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I know um, because I've been pretending uh, only for a few months, but it sucks. And I've been thinking about how much it would suck to have to uh, pretend to be uh, not you uh, your whole life. I always thought that there was one way to love, uh, one right way. There are more, uh, so many more than I knew. And I never want to be the guy who stops loving someone for loving the way that they want to love. That was odd. Now, let's give Trig. I also have been pretending. I've been pretending that Love isn't patient and kind and humble. Love is... 
Love is... Love is messy. And horrible. And selfish. And... Old. It's not finding your perfect half. It's... The trying. And... Reaching and... Failing. Love is... Being willing to ruin your good painting for the chance at a great one. This film, it's kind of shocking. It's like one of those typical rom-coms that you see on Netflix. You know, something that I thought would be like The Kissing Booth or To All the Boys. Um, but this really was heads and tails above that, above those films. So that is my number three film, the half wow. of it. I'll have to check yeah. it out. I actually didn't hear about it until right now. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you I like think it's tea, because right? well, the algorithm on my Netflix yeah. is different from the algorithm on yours. You're yeah. married and I'm a single guy, so <laughs> I probably get a lot more thrillers and action movies. <laughs> and movies no. dealing with abortion and <laughs> right. oh, the, uh, the trafficking industry in Tampa Bay. <laughs> my gosh. Definitely nice. better than To All the Boys, for sure. I definitely will put it above it a lot higher. <laughs> Wait till two comes out. Three. Oh, three. three. Two okay. was bad. Wow. Three. One, uh, one actually, I actually like one. I wish one they stopped good. at one. <laughs> one was good. Come on. One was good. All right. Anyway, Will, your number two film of the year. My number two film of the year is Pixar's Soul. Ooh. There he is. Hey, Curly. Leon skipping town really put us in a bind, man. Yeah, yeah I, I'll bet. Glad you made it. My boy Bishop said he uh, sat in with you on a set last year in Brooklyn. Said you were great. Well, <laughs> you don't have a far coffee shop. Hey, Dorothea. This is the cat I was telling you about. My old middle school band teacher, Mr. Gardner. Call me Joe, Dorothea. I, I, I mean, uh, Miss Williams. Uh, it's a pleasure. Wow, this is amazing. Uh, Joe is Ray Gardner's son. So, we're down to middle school band teachers now. What a film. I think this is one of Pixar's most mature and different films from, you know, from the rest. Like, I think this is one of the black sheep of, <laughs> of Pixar films. Because it digs deep into the philosophy of life and death. And has some interesting visuals of the great beyond and the great before. I can understand friends who have commented how it didn't feel like a Pixar film because, you know, just it's always emotionally driven, like like pulls the heartstrings, you know, for Pixar. But to me, I liked how they took a risk in telling different a different type of story, uh, you know, a story of curiosity, philosophy, and a journey of understanding self identity in a world than an emotional roller coaster. And I think Pete Doctor did a great job with this film, and I I've loved his other films as well, you know, such as he's done Up, Monsters Inc., and Inside Out. I just um, thought that just this whole this this take of a Pixar film was bold. And uh, I think that Jamie Foxx and uh, as well as um, Tina Fey, awesome chemistry, awesome job. Uh, I think that the the wonders of like their take on like what it means to be a soul, like or or something that like has no sense of taste, yeah. uh, touch, uh, thought, whatever. Like 
I, I don't know. Like it, it was so fascinating to me. It was more like just the fascinating way of how they how how their take on life before life is, I guess, in that sense. And 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 mm-hmm. and and yeah. also Jamie Fox being a uh, jazz player, you know. Uh, jazz is all about soul so i kind of thought it was so clever for them to call the film soul because it is about a literal soul and the fact of like theming it with jazz music but jimmy fox's character is also a teacher he, he's a he's a musician uh, music teacher as well and teaching trying to teach tina fey and finding helping her find she plays she plays the character called soul 22 and i think myron i remember you and i were discussing like with with cat like why it's like why the character's name is 22 and i think we've had our debates about like uh maybe she was the 22nd soul of ever made whatever because she's never she's never been created to live in live on earth yet like she's she's always had difficulty in finding her spark i guess what they call it. they called mm-hmm. it the spark and so uh but yeah like the 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 journey of trying to explain to uh, an abstract an entity about what pizza tastes like or, or the joys of of what it means to actually live and feel the wind on your face or or, or what like how, how music makes you feel all these things that obviously for Tina Fey she's like meh you know so <laughs> so you're saying that uh, Tina Fey character was kind of like um, goodwill hunting where he knew everything and basically, yeah. So it's all Robin textbook. Williams comes back. Yes. Says, but what oh, wow, I never thought Chapel about that. <laughs> smell like. <laughs> Had to type oh, back. <laughs> that is such a good analogy. Yes. She was all textbook, but no experience for sure. Yeah. yeah. And Robin Williams is like, remember that scene? He was like, well, when you hold your friend's arms <laughs> yes. as he was shot in war and all you can do is just hold him. That's it. Like, yeah, you may not yeah. you may know about like Shakespeare, like once more into the trenches, dear friends. It was so good. That's such a good analogy. It's so funny <laughs> that you said that. Yeah. Basically, basically. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. All right. That was my number two. <laughs> good pick. Good pick. Very good choice. Thank you. All right. Ah, Steve-O, what is your number two film? <laughs> My number on, two man. film is a film that Myron would not put on any list. <laughs> um, it is First Cow. I don't know if people have heard of this film. I have not. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's a film. It's a film. I'm going to say that. Yes. <laughs> it is a film. We have determined that much. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to be brief, as brief as I can. I kind of wrote a lot just because I figured that this probably wouldn't make your guys' list. But uh, First Cow is basically um, a film uh, that takes place in the Pacific Northwest and sometime in the 1800s uh, during the era of the Oregon, Oregon Trail and Western expansion. Mm. And so it follows a soft-spoken cook and a Chinese fur trapper who's on the run from um, killing a fellow Russian trapper. And uh, they actually you know, team up, eventually team up and uh, try to grift a settlement by selling biscuits made from stolen milk from the only cow in the entire region. So that's kind of how I summed up the film. Um, it takes a while to get to what I just said, probably like half an like. hour. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that if Ken Burns made The Revenant, you would get First Cow. That's my mm. explanation of it. So I wouldn't call it a slow burn because that implies it kind of picks up. This doesn't pick up, it just stays slow. But I think it's because once you get used to that slow cadence, you're able to really just kind of dwell in it. And so it became an interesting experience for me. And um, I think that uh, with this film, um, so like the production quality, yeah, it's kind of low. Um, in a lot of cases, the acting is probably subpar. But what really stuck to me was, uh, <laughs> well, 
I can hear you snickering in, in, in my uh, classification there of why this is a good film. <laughs> Only because I know Myron would look at the word subpar <laughs> and be like, it's worse than that. No, <laughs> no, no. So I actually, there are many things I really liked about this movie, but I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, the main thing that, that really hooked me with this film uh, was really the ideas and the concepts um, behind this film. Um, it's basically a, an anti-Western Western in the very best ways. It's, you know, Westerns and history of American West is usually portrayed via like toxic masculinity where might makes right. It's the gunslinger, you know. Um, but the characters of Cookie and Hung Lu, who are the, uh, the two, um, the cook and uh, the Chinese fur trapper, um, they are the opposite of toxic masculinity. They are the omega male in this alpha male driven world. And, That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> um, they, they, but like, you know, they're compassionate, they're soft-spoken, and uh, in, in many ways, they, they project more of the feminine that's missing in the West. And uh, what was really funny to me was to see that contrast where, yeah, the caricature, the caricature of the gruff agro frontiersman, you know, speaking with like thick accents and, you know, they sound like barbarians. And then you have something really thoughtfully spoken by King Lu, who's the, the Chinese fur trapper. And um, just the soft spokenness, it's just a really funny contrast. And you can see how these two really come together. And um, there's so much symbolism in this film too, like making biscuits is like a, a for some reason, like a cooking is a feminine trade, right? And to see that this is how they make their money in a, a world where it's all about hunting things and killing things, digging things out of the dirt, very masculine. Those contrasts were really interesting. And um, what brought these, uh, I guess, these Johns um, to uh, Cookie and King Lou were the biscuits because it reminded them of home, reminded them of their mothers, of you know wives that they might have left behind. And so in, in that way, it kind of like lends the film in a different way for me, where I saw those contrasts. And I would say even the cow, um, because it's called First Cow, that really tickled my brain. And the cow doesn't show up, like Myron says, to like an hour into the film. Um, you're wondering why you're even watching it, and the cow shows up, and like that's this cow, is that this is about a cow comes to town. But <laughs> I think being a history buff, um, I kind of understood what that symbolism was. The cow, uh, which is the MacGuffin of the film, uh, is represents technology. You know, uh, you can't plow fields without cows. You can't, you know, farm or uh, create the foundations of of a small town civilization without a cow. And so, cows represent, you know, settlement and re represents home, the feminine, the feminine. And um, ultimately, when the Wild West was won, it wasn't won by the gun, it was won by settlement. It was won mm. by the cow. There's a port at the mouth of the river. We'll go downstream and catch the first clipper south. How about that? Why is a baker like a beggar? Why? They both need bread. You make it. You just need to stay on your feet. <laughs> I guess uh, also from a personal standpoint, um, having traveled cross country a lot in the West, uh, I remember going to Tombstone, Arizona, and there was a tombstone in Boot Hill Cemetery, very famous, where uh, Doc Hollywood and you know mm -hmm. that whole gang fought and died or whatever. Um, there were several tombstones that said shot by a Chinaman. <laughs> and uh, it just like, you know, it tickled my brain because I'm like, what, what does that mean? Like, I'm a second generation, you know, Asian immigrant. What, what does that even mean? And it didn't really hit me that, you know, um, Asian immigration happened way earlier. And um, because of the 
in, in history, the, the 1884, Railroad. the Chinese Exclusion Act, basically was one of the first um, immigration, an, uh, anti-immigration laws passed by the United States. And mm -hmm. also uh, Chinese folks and anyone who looked Chinese were rounded up and shipped off back to China. So they were mm -hmm. literally eradicated from the American West and uh, in cinema as well. And so to see uh, King Lou played by Orion Lee, it was really um, thought provoking for me to be able to see, you know, know the yeah. West was actually um, very diverse back then. Mm. Yeah. Very true. Do you think that this was a slow burn that correlated with, like the slow burn of this film is a correlation to just the, 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 the time of that era, you know, also because things weren't as technologically advanced. A lot of things took time. And I think to lead up to that point of the cow was that journey of, of luck or something, or just finding the fact that, okay, you know, this is how life is actually. It's, it wasn't that exciting right. back then. I you know? don't so, think so. I think it was no. like yeah. intentional. Yeah. Mm. So the first shot of the movie is actually taking place in modern times mm -hmm. where uh, we can only ascertain or assume that uh, a girl and her dog discovers uh, these two sets of skeleton bones right uh, buried oh. in a pile of dirt interesting and it happens present day and we assume that these are our two main characters but before we even meet these two characters our first shot taking place in present day is of a large boat which crosses the entire frame it starts <laughs> off frame and then enters frame and you think you're going to cut away and see something and see people but no for like maybe two minutes this boat is just <laughs> Crossing the frame. <laughs> did you did you recognize who the uh, actress was in that scene? Yeah, um, from Arrested Development, yeah, right? Funk, Funke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alaya uh, Shaka. Uh, I don't know. How yeah, to say yeah. Name, I'm a huge yeah. fan of hers. But yeah. by the way, I did put two and two together. Now that you're talking about the whole idea of industry and what the cow represents, I think that ties directly to the image of that boat in the very yeah. first scene. Yeah, like industry. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. And mm. yeah, yeah, I, I want to ex expand on that too. Like he's doing yeah. things that. Well, to your point of will, like you know. Why is it slow? Uh, Kelly Reichert is the director of this film. Um, she was doing some really interesting things um, where uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film wasn't really a scene, but like I would mm. say uh, a, a hangover from a scene. Um, it, there's uh -huh. a scene where um, I guess Cookie and King Lou uh, come up to um, this wealthy individual's um, home to uh, present him with biscuits. And uh, I won't spoil yeah. it or anything. Um, hopefully you'll watch it. But... Uh, <laughs> Basically, the scene happens, and they're introducing new characters and plot twists and whatnot and tension. And then the characters leave the room, and the camera stays in the room, and it stays with um, two native characters who, yeah, um, you know, they're dressed in Western clothing. But the moment yeah. that uh, these Anglo folks leave the room, they resort to speaking in their own native tongue, and it just held on them. And you don't know what they're saying. There's no subtitles, but yeah. it was just this really wonderful moment where. Um, yeah, you got you got to see something that is part of this world, but that's not necessary to the plot. And I think she's yeah. doing a lot of these things that slows it down, but really adds to the world of First Cow. Very, very true. So I actually agree with you on quite a few points, not on so many others. I actually <laughs> really love the the production design 
um, the sets and the you know Kelly what she does is uh, she lets the camera linger yes. like you know if you see like a settlement and you know all these dirty grizzled men um, kind of lining up for food or to like buy goods it's like their costume is the costume design in this movie I thought was really top notch and the camera really lingers on the design of the sets and stuff like that so I did really love that I also really love the intentionality of, of how she used the camera mm-hmm. there were like a few shots where we're inside King Lou's um, shack yeah. I think that's the best best term <laughs> for it but the camera really does stay locked off throughout the movie maybe a few pans here and there but that's about it yeah. but there's like this angle where the camera is facing outward through the door and then there's also a window there the camera doesn't move but you see everything you need to see through the opening of the window and also the opening of the door very very interesting framing yeah. tactics Great John Ford. that I really did yeah yeah I love the composition of a lot of these shots. And then I do see the metaphor. I think what I got from it was that it's kind of about like, it's about us, right? Mm -hmm. We try to make a quick buck however we can. And once we find something that works, we tend to kind of be corrupted by it. And eventually we get caught because we tend to put our hand in the cookie jar one too many times. So I feel like there's a definite allegory between, uh, you know, our economy and how people tend to take advantage of the system. And, uh, you know, with what's happening with uh, our two main characters and, this cow and this cow i just yeah i just didn't like that it's like okay it's first cow where's the cow where's the cow what what are they gonna do with the cow and then i looked at my i remember i looked at my clock my watch i was like oh they're an hour into the movie and we finally know what they're gonna do with the cow yeah. you want to talk about the four three framing myron <laughs> why don't you talk about that Steve? <laughs> Well, like Westerns, you usually associate that with like, you know, Panavision and like super ultra widescreen anamorphic, get the beauty of nature, right? Mm. And she did the exact opposite. 4-3, stay in a box, stay confined. And in a way, it felt like psychologically she was saying these characters, you know, are the bottom of the barrel in this rugged mountain man society. And so it's very claustrophobic for them. Uh, there's not much hope to rise up in the ranks because they're not aggro like the other men. They're not like hunting down anything that moves. And so that 4-3 framing, um, I feel like really worked for me. Mm. Okay. I, I actually didn't mind the framing. What I did mind <laughs> extremely was the, uh, was the uh, color grade in this movie. Ah, okay. It's like they shot it digitally. It's so obvious they didn't make shoot it with a 16 millimeter camera. It looks like they shot it with a digital camera, threw on some crop on the left and right of the screen, yeah. and then threw on a really, really, really bad <laughs> film grain filter, cranked to 100. That's what it looked like. <laughs> it, it really bothered me. That, But I mean, overall though, I, I know I kind of bash on the movie a little bit. I did really enjoy it. And there are many things that are really, really great about it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Out of uh, everything he hated, he loved it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. because of that, I had to put it at number two. <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. I appreciate that. And I noticed you put the title of this in all caps, as you did when you uh, submitted the list, as if to say, hey, Myron, look, first (laughs) cow. Yeah. Love it. Love it. All right, guys. We are down to our number one films of the year. Before we get to that, we have one more friend of the podcast that would like to come on and share their number one film of the year. Mike Savino, he joined us for our horror movie episode a few months back. He's here to share his number one pick of the year. Hey guys, Mike Salvino here. Uh, Just wanted to start off by saying, uh, so this year I didn't watch as many 
film releases as I had wanted to, uh, either because I didn't feel like paying the $20 for a rental or just didn't know about the release in general. So out of the 2020 movies that I did see, um, just a quick top ones that I actually enjoyed watching uh, were uh, Extraction, uh, that was with Chris Hemsworth on Netflix, and His House, the recent horror release on Netflix. Um, but out of the 2020 films that I saw, the one that was most memorable and the one that I most just enjoyed watching, I got to give it to uh, The Invisible Man. Um, so, yep, that was my top pick for 2020. Uh, I'm sure there's better releases out there, but I didn't see them. But that was the most enjoyable for me. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right. Thanks, Mike, for that choice. Hope to see more of you this year as well. All right, guys. Drum roll, please. Oh yeah. Sorry, my drum's broken. Give me the, <laughs> give me the gun. Give, give, me, give me the gun. Give me the yes. gun. <laughs> All right. So on to our number one films of the year. I'm going to ask you guys to reveal that, bef- but before you do, please count down picks ten through two. So, starting with you first, Will. So, starting from ten, let them all talk. Nine was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Eight was Onward. Seven, Enola Holmes. Six, Palm Springs. Five, King of Staten Island. Four, Trial of Chicago 7. Three, Robin's Wish. Two, Soul. Should I wait? And your number one film of the year, sir. Envelope, please. (laughs) (laughs) Sound of Metal. yeah sound of metal so great choice yes this is a film i would never expect it to be so emotionally difficult to watch but it was amazing Uh, from the acting to the cinematography and especially the sound design yes this film brings you to the forefront of experiencing what our main character ruben played by riz ahmed is experiencing so Riz Ahmed, obviously, he uh, he he plays a character that is a drummer in a metal, like rock, hardcore band, but uh, soon loses his hearing. And Riz Ahmed executed his role as Ruben with such an authentic force of emotional distress frustration and realism when he lost his hearing like it's a connection i'm able to quickly bond with because in any case i think most people have dealt with in an unfortunate circumstance that completely changes your way of life especially when the thing you love most has helped you overcome previous hardships so this film even takes it even further because we get a glimpse into also who who they like were in their past like the things that they Mm. they dealt with in the past so for ruben and his girlfriend lou played by olivia cook music was their escape it was their 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 uh their healing it was their it was just it was something that it was basically their their solution Mm. yes Mm -hmm. and their bond in the from their past life where they dealt with addiction and self-harm so for Ruben, it was addiction of heroin, and then for Olivia Cook, I believe it was it was self harm. So you could, because you can, she'll show yeah. you can see slashes like healed scars on her on her forearm that that she has hurt herself. Man, uh, when we discussed about this film, Myron, like 
this specifically the sound design it was just so jarring and it was so uncomfortable but it was like so necessary you know to to really mm-hmm. be able to uh engulf ourselves in like this this situation that 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 was going on and um yeah. i think that the main point of this film uh was how to cope and how to how to deal with such you know huge transitions of life like that happening to you mm-hmm. and and the main uh, word I believe that that we um, saw in the film was stillness you know mm-hmm. and and Joe uh, the the character Joe uh, which who played uh, which the actor Paul Racy Paul Racy yes yeah. he he really really did such a phenomenal job in kind of like giving us a glimpse of a guy who has also dealt with such hardships kind of lead or train or like he just knew exactly what Ruben was going through and how to just basically um, help him understand how to cope by making him just do a simple assignment, which was to sit in a room with a pen and pad write your thoughts if you if if you if you're feeling frustrated if you have a lot going on in your mind just write it down and write profusely just keep going until you can't go anymore and just sit there again and just and just wait mm-hmm. and how it just correlated that moment with how it really gave us gave us that amazing piece at the end where where uh Ruben is on the bench and with his uh what was it like he he got the surgery to get you know cochlear implants um, which was obviously like that was his solution. His solution was thinking if I get these cochlear implants, I can go back to normal and, and live my life. But that wasn't the case because we learned later on that cochlear implants do not give you back your normal sense of hearing. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's tricking your brain into creating these frequencies of sounds that, that like that aren't accurate but it's still you're able to it's it's only no it's only used for hearing and understanding you know and be able to communicate basically and and so much noise that was building up in the end where he was sitting sitting on the bench the moment he takes it out sound goes completely silent and he's just looking around and that was like the moment he found stillness yeah. So yes. amazing. Beautiful and that is, as an audience member too, like, you know, hearing that stillness is kind of like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You take a, yeah, I literally took a deep, I was like, oh my gosh, like all the bird noises, the talking, like it was very robotic, static. It was, I'm like, I don't even know I'd be able to handle this even if I went, you know, if I was deaf yeah. and wanting, dealing. And the moment he just pulls it out, I literally took a deep breath. I was like, oh my gosh, like sense of that relief. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. So that's right. ugh, such a great film.
Good film. Good film. All right. Great pick. Great pick. I will go ahead and go through my list and review my number one, and then Steve will close us out. Cool. My number 10 film of the year was Borat 2. Very my nice. Number nine film was, my number nine film was The Assistant. My number eight film was Defy Bloods. My number seven film was The Way Back. My number six film was Soul. My number five film was Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Number four was Palm Springs. Number three was The Half of It. Number two was The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And my number one film of the year, much like Will, was The Sound of Metal. Ooh. A tie? Yep. Uh, a tie. <laughs> this movie really resonated with me on so many different levels. And I still think about some of the messages that the movie had mm. kind of embedded within it. And it's still at, I'm still asking myself questions because of it. Um, obviously Will covered it. It's about a heavy metal drummer. Uh, his, his life is thrown into free fall when he starts to lose his hearing. And this movie was so immersive because of how they use sound design to make us feel what he is feeling when he gets the cochlear implants towards the end of the movie that he's striving so hard to get. Uh, he realizes that his hearing won't be the same and he gave up everything to be able to have this surgery. Um, this movie also really deals with addiction, but not in the ways that you think. We know that they're recovered addicts, right? Ruben and Lou, played by Olivia Cook. But in this film, it talks about an addiction of a different kind, an addiction to keeping the status quo of making sure your life stays the same mm -hmm. because oftentimes, sometimes we get hit with a curveball and everything gets thrown out of whack and sometimes we fall into a depression because all we want is for our life to go back to the way it was before. We want to get that fix, right? And that's what this movie is about. It's about an addiction to the things that you didn't know you were addicted to. And that's probably one of the most powerful messages of the film to me. Uh, amazing performances here. What really sticks out is Riz Ahmed as Ruben, of course, yeah. who uh, just won Best Actor at the Gotham yeah, Awards. Steve-O did mention that. Yep. And also great was Paul Racy, who played Joe, who I guess plays the main caretaker at the home that Ruben stays at. For the rehab, yeah. Uh, as, yeah, as he's coming to terms with his hearing loss. An amazing film. So many great moments. Great performances. A lot of heartache, but also a message of hope. And just like Will said, when Ruben is finally able to have that moment of stillness at the end of the movie, we're right there with him. And what a journey it was to get there. So that is my number one film. Amazing. And I actually wanted to also like add, like it's interesting, right? Because I think, I don't know if you guys can also relate when, when such a frustrating event for us, whether it's trivial or whether it's, whether it's also uh, um, serious, um, like we try to fix it. Like mm -hmm. as quickly as we can, and not reali not realizing the naivety that we're that we're going through, because we don't really care about what may happen or certain repercussions. Uh, we just firmly try to grasp on the belief that it's gonna go back to normal. We're gonna make sure it goes back to normal, but normal isn't always what we expect it to be once we get there, kind mm. of thing. You know? Yeah. Sounds like exactly. you're talking about the coronavirus. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> the new normal. The new normal. <laughs> can we deal with the new normal? Can we just can I just take off the cochlear implants of this COVID? And yes. be yeah, and be be gone. Be gone. It. Absolutely. Still. <laughs> so good. All right. Steve O, take us home, yes. brother. All right. What's your top ten my list and your number one pick? Uh my number ten was Zola. Number nine was Palm Springs. Mm -hmm. Eight um is Myron's favorite tenant. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, my number seven was The Five Bloods. Number six was Bad Education. Number five, Trial of Chicago 7. Number four, Let Them All Talk. Number three, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Number two, First Cow. And my number one is Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Ooh. Ah. So, yeah, I know that um, we spoke about this earlier, and um, I totally mm -hmm. 100% agree with everything mine was saying. And some of our points probably will, um, you know, it's probably the, I, the same points. Uh, but, yeah, I saw this film for the first time, I think at the, not the premiere, but the second screening, uh, over at Sundance when it was nice and cold. And um, I was just blown away by the sincerity and the heartfelt sensitivity dealing with his characters. And um, before I start, I just want to say that I'm probably biased in picking this film as my number one because uh, I went to film school with the producer Adele Romanski, who also produced Moonlight and won uh, Best Picture for the Oscars. And uh, the director I got to meet too, Eliza Hittman, um, she's a cl uh, classmate of one of my good editing friends who encouraged me to go out and just like reach out to her and talk to her, say hi. And uh, I did, and I'm so glad that I did. And I, I wonder if that affected my decision. But I will say that uh, it was really cool to watch this at Sundance with the filmmakers. And um, it, this film came kind of special for me in that way. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, Sundance is really cool to, to watch films in that. We should definitely go when they open back up. Uh, IRL. Oh, I would love yeah. that. 2022, yeah. new, let's do it. The new normal. The new normal. Hopefully, the new, maybe. New normal. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully, maybe, rarely, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to <laughs> always, go always, always, <laughs> always, always, always. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm just gonna kind of quickly describe what um, the film um, sums sum up. What the film means to me. Not means to me. Uh, sum up what the film uh, is about uh, to me. Uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is a heart-wrenching story about a rural American teen who runs away to New York City with the help of her best friend and cousin to get an abortion procedure that is banned in her conservative part of the country. So uh, it follows Autumn, our protagonist, um, which Myron um, so succinctly uh, described. Um, she has this quiet resolve about her, it's, uh, and I, I wonder if it's like her necessity to, to survive in her su suffocating patriarchic town filled with Sexually predatory men and condescending doctors and parents. Um, you just in that one sentence, you can kind of mm. get a feel of what she's dealing yeah. with. Uh, which, yeah. because there are no like the spoken words in this, it's it's very naturalistic. You know, everything like to Myron's point, um, Sydney Flanagan is just emoting just her reactions um, with her face. And uh, yeah, that being said, uh, the film does center around abortion. And to Myron's point. This film is not about abortion. It's about these two characters. And uh, I just want to reinforce that point that um, during the, the Q&A at Sundance, uh, Elizabeth Hitman also said the same thing. She said that uh, the first time she heard the story actually uh, was about uh, teenagers in, in other parts of the world that you would associate this with. And when she discovered that it was happening here in the US, it was like a, this shock moment to her. And she realized that what brought her to the project wasn't the you know the aspect of abortion it was the characters journeys these two brave young women that they take to try to get this done and mm. so um i just want to you know reinforce that yeah that's this movie is not about abortion it's about their journey and um mm. that being said uh just speaking about this film i thought that the directing on this was just phenomenal i know last week we talked about that heart-wrenching scene where uh the film gets its title where autumn is sitting with the social worker yeah. And, you know, they're going down the list of questions and you got to answer with one of four words, never rarely, sometimes always. Um, heart-wrenching scene. And there are so many other heart-wrenching scenes because it's done with such uh, sensitivity and grace. And um, 
one of the scenes is, uh, this is really brutal, but um, she doesn't know what to do, so she's trying to force a miscarriage by punching herself. And mm. she looks in the mirror and, you know, as she's doing, she realizes, what the hell am I doing? Like, I'm also hurting myself. This isn't the way. And uh, just the yeah. emotion that pours after that self-realization, just wow. And of course, there's the follow the follow up scene when she goes to see a doctor, yes. and then she lifts up her shirt, and she has the bruises on yes. her stomach. Ugh. Yes, just brutal, brutal. brutal. And the, the look on her face of like, she knows what she did was, you know, yeah. It's the look on her face was just, ah, it just yeah. summed it up. I can't explain it. But um, that to that point, the acting I thought was just phenomenal. Uh, to your point, Ron, uh, Myron, um, Autumn played by Sydney Flanagan. Uh, from the Q and A's, they were saying that um, Eliza Hitman went around trying to cast this film before all the financing was in place, and found uh, Sydney in a small town, and just kept in touch with her. And uh, just the realism that she was going for, um, Sydney definitely portrayed that. And so uh, that's how she kind of came across the casting of it. And I have to say, the the relationship between the two lead characters, um, Autumn and Skyler, uh, played by Talia Ryder, um, that was really special, you know? Um, they was. were having moments where they're not ha saying anything. It's just an, an exchange of glances in a two-shot, and you know exactly what they were saying. And uh, that yeah. kind of connectivity, that kind of chemistry, um, really brought this film to the forefront, I feel like. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that uh, they brought so much rel relatability to it. Um, I know that they're much younger than us, but um, playing you know, 17-year-olds or whatever, but um, I don't know if you guys been to New York City when you were in your 20s or, you know, the first time. Yeah. Uh, just that whole, like, song and it's dance. It's a big yeah. place. Yeah. yeah, and, like, going to the subways it. for the first time and yeah. Uh, yeah. the suitcase thing, uh, shooting Paradox, we had a suitcase always because it's a prop. And having to lift that up and down the stairs and, you know, trying to find a place to sleep because you're trying to wait out the night to, you know, meet up with people or catch your flight or something, all that just rang true. And... Maybe just because of that personal experience, it, it felt a lot more truer to me. I don't know. But uh, the, that kind of journey of those obstacles, those physical obstacles, was very relatable. And uh, one thing, um, back to Wills, you made that point about um, uh, seeing things through the female perspective. Um, I think Eliza definitely brought that in here with um, a lot of the, um, the male-dominated world. There's a couple scenes in the subway, which I don't really want to say, but it was really disturbing. Um, just the, the sexual predatorial nature of um, men that she projects in this film, that she portrays in this film, mm. it, it really gives you the sense of vulnerability for these characters, you know? Um, something as innocuous as traveling through a subway station can feel really dangerous. Yep. And it was really interesting how Eliza captured that because um, yep. a lot of us have been through subway stations and it just feels like a subway station, but she was able to bring that psychological part of it. And so this film is my number one because of the grace and sensitivity that Eliza brought to these characters. And um, yeah. you know, a lot of times characters are represented by ideas, um, but with this film, Eliza just let the characters live in the frame. And I think that approach really worked well for this film. Yeah, great. Yeah. Amazing choice there. Uh, the one thing I want to reiterate to all of our listeners as we went through our list is that the majority of these movies can be seen for free on all of the major streaming platforms out there. Maybe a handful of them you have to pay to see like, um, I know The Assistant or uh, King of Staten Island, Tenet, Tenet, these films you might have to pay a little bit to see. 
but yeah, like even never rarely, sometimes always, uh, it's it's available for free on HBO Max. First Cow is on Showtime. Uh, a ton of these movies are on Netflix. There's so much great content out there, and just because we are all stuck at home in 2020. It doesn't mean that it was a bad year for movies. Yeah. In fact, it was quite the contrary. So please do check out these movies. And I feel like the Academy Awards this year are going to look hopefully really different, right? Yeah. It's not about the movie going experience or how much a movie made. It's really just about like us and the, the voters watching a movie in their living room and seeing if they identify with the film itself. Mm, yeah. So really excited to see what gets nominated this year and of course certain movies were not on our list movies like no bad yes, land and of course minari mm-hmm. yeah which we haven't had a chance to see as of yet but we will so uh this list it might change uh with future reviews <laughs> and if they do we'll be sure to let you all know about it uh but in the meantime steve thank you so much for joining yeah, us for yet again me. it was a, a lot of fun it, it was so much fun yeah, Steve, I'm sure we'll have you back on sometime this year. Hopefully, it won't take another year for I you know. to come on our show. No, this yeah. is it. And, this uh, is it. Until <laughs> yeah. next year, Steve. Yeah, not until next year. <laughs> until ne- 2022. Until next year. You had just, and you please had your do time. make sure, please, please do make sure to let us know when your uh, show is available. We'd love to check Definitely. it out. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Nice yeah. special little screening. Frick yeah. <laughs> awesome. Nice. All right. That was our episode. Next week, we will be back with reviews of the films assassins as well as pieces of a woman and also an, an interview with joe sale from corporate kai and until then we just want to remind you that it's not so much the destination but the things you watch and experience along the way we are the film drifters until then stay safe stay safe everybody see you later Peace.